Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here today, especially if you're watching for the very first time. We are so glad you're here. Uh, wherever you are in the world, whenever you happened upon this, we're, we're glad you did and hope it's been helpful and meaningful. Today, we're going to continue our series, Reimagining, Reframing, and Reclaiming the Language of Faith. But before we jump in, I want to share just a little bit of news. It's a day of celebration here at the Scott House because today our Ava Hope, also known around these parts as Ava Bug, is celebrating her fourth birthday. Yes, number four. And so I told her every week we gather in our family room and we watch the gatherings on our TV. And I told Ava that this week I would make sure she got to be on the TV. And so we're going to pop up her picture and you can see how, and you can, oh, she's so cute, right? And she's probably really happy right now. And Ava Bug, we love you so much and hope you have a wonderful day celebrating your birthday. So now let's segue into a sermon. Today I want to talk about humility. What is it that pops into your brain? What, what are the associations, the first things that pop into your mind when you hear the word humility or when somebody is described as being humble? I mean, we even use that to describe sometimes people who uh, maybe have risen to great heights, but will say they had humble beginnings, right? I, I think for most of us, I, I would imagine we sort of stick to the textbook definition of humility, which is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Humility is a modest or often, I think, usually low view of one's own importance. And looking back on my experience for most of my life, I would say that, that my concept of humility has been tinged with that idea of a low view of your own importance, a low sense of self, you know, sort of a who, who am I to do that? Other people should do that. There are people more equipped, people more powerful, people with more money, people with more whatever, they should be doing that, right? We, we just sort of, humility almost gets associated with uh, keeping yourself down, playing small a bit. Um, and, and, and it's what we're commanded to do. So how, how dare we do something else? And I think that for many of us, the starting place that we were given is that we are, as human beings, we enter the world and we are completely and totally depraved. We come straight from the factory with a malfunction, with a defect. There is no good in us, is often the way I've heard it put, and there's no, nothing even capable of desiring good in us. Now, why is that? Because way back at the beginning, uh, a couple people were in a garden together, naked, and they ate some fruit that they were forbidden to eat. And because of that act, um, which is not called a sin in the Bible, that's something we import into the text. We talked about this several weeks ago. Um, but as a result, everybody, because they ate the fruit in the garden, everybody who's ever entered the world has entered the world with the stain of original sin. We have entered the world sinners. We are incapable of being good, we are unworthy of love, and we are destined to be tortured for all eternity. Now, if, if the sermon stopped here, that's, that doesn't sound very good. And, and I actually don't think that's the best way to talk about it. From this perspective, humility is about remembering how helpless and hopeless and undeserving we are, we were, and still are today. Right? I mean, how many of how many, heard somebody say, you know, I'm just so unworthy. Talking about God's love, talking about God's grace, I'm just so unworthy. And, and what ends up happening is we end up getting into the system where anything that happens that is good, God is given credit for, right? So whatever you do, you give a sermon, you sing a song, you win the national championship in football, you win the Super Bowl, you win the PGA Tour, you win an Oscar, you win a Grammy, and you like immediately, it's like, I just want to thank God I, because God gets all the credit for the win. But what happens when something bad happens? What happens when you lose? I don't see a lot of people going, hey, I lost, and God gets all the credit. We sort of set up this system, this humility racket, where everything good that happens, God gets credit for, and everything bad that happens, 
we get credit for. So it almost makes it seem like that there's something wrong with having some semblance of, of, of success or, or achieving something or, or winning something or, or having a moment in life where you're, you've used your talent, you use your energy, you use your creativity, something good happens and somebody comes up to you and says, that was awesome. And our sort of reflex is to say, no, no, you see, there's, there's really nothing good and I'm not capable of good. So if it was good, it must be God. If it's bad, it must be me. And I think what we've done is we've created a, a system where we automatically think human is bad, divine is good. And one of the things I've come to believe very deeply is that bad theology leads to bad anthropology. And to put that another way, a toxic view of God will ultimately lead to a toxic understanding of what it is to be human. I mean, is this what humility is about? Playing small? sort of just accepting this reality that we're not good and there's nothing good in us and we're capable of no good. So if anything good happens, it must be that something extraordinary is happening in us or around us or through us. I think we've had, we've been the recipients of some bad theology. And because of that bad theology, we have made decisions about anthropology, about people, about what it means to be human. And we've decided that to be human is to be bad, is to be capable of no good, capable. And so to be humble then is to just stay low, and to remember how bad and rotten and depraved and sinful we were and still are. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get some of the crumbs from the divine table. Is that really what humility is about? Is it sinful to have a self-esteem? Is it sinful to take some sort of joy in an accomplishment? So what I want to decide to do, because I've been a self-professed, confessed word nerd, is I decided to do a little word nerdery, which makes me very happy, and I decided to dig into the etymology of the word humility or humble, and here's what I discovered. Our word in English, humility, comes from the Latin word humilitas, which is a noun that is related to an adjective, so hang on, it is a noun related to an adjective, humilis, that can be translated as humble. I mean, it's where we get the word humiliate, Right? And this word that we translate, this adjective we translate as humble, really means grounded or from the earth. And if we follow back down the, the vocabulary tree, what we come to is a word that all these other words spring from, and it's the word humus. Not to be confused with the word hummus, which is a delightful snack, but the word humus. And the word humus simply means earth. When we track down the origins of our understand our word humility, which we've taken to mean low or, or and somehow like undeserving, when we when we trace it down to its original elements, we come to this word humus, which simply just means earth. Now, when I had this realization, when I learned this, all the little lights on my dashboard started blinking, but because it reminded me of a story way back at the beginning of the Bible. The Bible begins with two creation stories. One in Genesis 1 is sort of this creation story and sort of cosmic. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. And God does everything just through the divine word. In Genesis 2, it's a different creation story, and it happens in different orders. And in this story, we have God doing something slightly different. Notice this from Genesis 2. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't sent, hadn't yet sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all the fertile land. 
The Lord God formed the human from topsoil, from the topsoil of the fertile land, and blew life's breath, breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human she had formed. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and take care of it. So in this creation story, Genesis chapter 2, God gets dirt under her fingernails and reaches into the soil and forms the first human. And after this lifeless dirt clod of a being has been formed, she leans down and breathes divine CPR, breathes spirit, breathes breath into his nostrils. And this dirt clod becomes a living, breathing human being. Now, what's really interesting is that in Hebrew, there's a wordplay we miss um, in English. And the wordplay is this. The word for human here is the word Adam, which we in English call Adam. Right? This person's name isn't Adam. This is what he, this first original being is. He's Adam. He's human. Then the word uh, land or ground in this text is the word Adamah. Right? So Adam, the human, comes from the Adamah, the soil. There's this explicit in Hebrew connection between this first human being and the ground from which this first being was formed. And, and that's not all. Humans are born of soil, but we're also born of spirit, of breath. Because when the human is just soil, it's just a dirt clot. It's just laying there. It takes the divine breath. It takes the divine spirit. It takes something being breathed into this first being for this being to come alive. Human beings are born of soil and spirit. Human beings, to be human is to be grounded in the here and now and also have the longing for more. It's to have the longing for answers to questions. It's to wonder what is the meaning of life. It's to, it's to experience joy and experience uh, laughter and goodness. To be human is to be fully alive and to be fully alive, not just physically, not just breathing, and living, but to be fully alive in some other way. Where we're wondering, what does all of this mean? What am I supposed to do with this? That's what it means to be human. We're grounded in here now, we're from the soil, but we have the breath of the divine in us. To be human is to be a, a marriage of dirt and breath and spirit. In Genesis 2, this first human has an undeniable connection to the earth. This human comes from the earth, is dependent on the earth, right? This human being is born of the earth and then will only be able to survive if the earth produces crops, but yet the earth is also dependent on the human. In this story, we find that God hadn't sent rain yet, and there was no one to work the soil. Right, so in this story, God needed a farmer. And so God forms the first being out of soil, breathes into this being, and puts this being, this human, in a garden to work it, to till it, to take care of it, to, to bring forth out of the earth the abundance that is capable of bringing out. The soil gave birth to the human, and if the human is good to the soil, if they tend it and care for it, if they respect it, the soil will sustain the human. There's this relationship between being human and being dependent on the earth, and that in some way, the earth is also dependent on us. We're connected in so many ways, not just with other people and beings, we're even connected with the dirt. So with this in mind, let's go back to the word humility, a word that is derived from earth. What if humility is not about having a low view of ourselves? What if humility is not 
achieving something and saying, gosh, I'm not, I, I don't deserve that achievement. When maybe you worked really hard for it and you studied hard and you passed the test or you did the thing that you needed to do and now you got the diploma, you got the degree, uh, and, and now you're sort of like, gosh, who am I to even have these aspirations? I should just sort of stay low. Is humility about playing small and denying what we have, denying that we actually have something that the world needs, denying that there are gifts in us, abilities in us, dreams in us, imagination in us that the world desperately, so desperately in these days, really needs to be unleashed in goodness and compassion. What if humility is remembering our interconnectedness to all things? What if humility is when we understand that we come from the soil, that someday we will return from the soil, and in these in-between moments, we are actually connected to and dependent on each other? And I think, for me, one of the things that has taught this lesson so unfortunately and powerfully is this current pandemic we're still going in, we're still existing in. And everything looks like that, actually, instead of going the right direction, the numbers are going the wrong direction. But what have we learned in this pandemic? That it really doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what part of town you live in. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. It doesn't matter how much money or how little money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter what language you speak. That we are all connected. <laughs> that this virus knows no borders. And it knows no nationalities. And that some of the ways we, we tend to divide up the world, what moments like this reveal is that really it's just, it's just stuff we've created, right? It's things that we, it's these constructs that we've made to sort of put space between us, to deny our interconnectedness. But I think what I'm learning is that humility, being from the soil, is a reminder, being breathed into by the divine is this reminder that every other human being that exists, all seven billion plus of us, and all the ones that came before and all the ones that'll come after us, are created as this marriage between soil and spirit, that we're from the earth and we're also from the divine. We're connected. Right now there are people, all seven billion people in the world, I don't know any of them, most of them anyway. I don't know very many of them at all. And yet, somehow, what I do in the world, how I choose to live my life, how I choose to vote, how I choose to spend money, what I choose to do with my time and energy, with my creativity, with my imagination, that actually has impact and effects on people I will never meet and people that I do not know who they are or where they are or what their life is like. And if we lean into this idea that humility is ultimately about this connection we all share, it actually makes, that awareness makes empathy possible in new ways, right? Because when I look at another human being, I'm not looking at somebody over there who I don't know and who doesn't matter and we have no relationship. The only thing I know about them, if I've never met them, is that they're from the soil and they're from the spirit. And that gives us an implicit connection between one another. That I bet they have hopes and dreams. I, I bet they have all sorts of... Uh, problems and successes and all sorts of things going on in life that I, I don't know about, but I know that they're a living, breathing human being. They're a marriage of soil and spirit. And it makes empathy possible in new ways. When we begin to live from that space and we know that there's this mutual common good, that, that's when we can really begin to transform the world. And actually what studies show 
is that most of the problems in societies actually spring from inequality. Most of the problems in societies spring from the fact that that the gap between the rich and the poor is growing. And in America, we're seeing this happen right now. It's growing at rates that um, are alarming, right? But in societies where inequality is greater, what they found is that health of everybody across the board is, is less, they have less health than people in, who live in countries with greater equality and greater equity. That actually it's in societies where there's great inequality that even the people at the top of sort of the power food chain pyramid, whatever, the people at the top, those folks suffer also. It's not just the people at the bottom. It's not just the people in the middle. It's that across the board in societies where there's inequality, great inequality, that people's conditions and quality of life and their overall well-being are affected from top to bottom because we are connected to each other. We are interconnected to each other. And humility is learning to live with that awareness. I mean, think about one of the basic, basic commands from Jesus that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I was in a conversation with um, Jeff Clark the other day about this idea, love your neighbor as yourself. And he mentioned that this, we actually may have kept this command but because we've been taught not to love ourselves, not to value ourselves, not to see goodness or even the possibility of doing something meaningful in the world in ourselves. That anytime we feel like maybe we should, we could reach for, we could, I could do this. I could, I could step in there and we automatically feel the, the swat of, of humility. Maybe, maybe it's the, the sort of the, the bus monitor in our brains who's saying, no, 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 that's not you. That's for other people. That's not for you. Maybe the problem isn't that we failed to love our neighbors ourselves. Maybe the problem is that's exactly what we're doing. Maybe when we mistreat others, when we gossip about others, when we wound others, when maybe what we're ultimately doing is we're, we're taking the way we've been taught and the way we've been conditioned to view ourselves and we're turning that out and pushing it onto other people as well. But what if we actually were to be taught that loving yourself, valuing yourself, believing in yourself isn't ego, it isn't pride, it, it, it's part of what makes you human. It's part of what makes you this mixture of soil and spirit. To have dreams, to, to understand that you have gifts to offer the world, that's not prideful. But, but there, there is pride. Pride exists. And so pride is sort of, right, it's the opposite of humility. So if humility is about understanding the interconnectedness we all share, pride from this lens would be grounded in a belief that we aren't connected to all things and all people that really we sort of exist in and of and for ourselves, and that what we do doesn't matter. What other people do doesn't matter. What we do doesn't matter. It's all about like me, and it's all about my life. And so pride is what happens when we believe this myth that we're self-made and self-sustaining, right? It's when we believe this myth that, well, I just pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Well, why is nobody asking the question, where did you get the bootstraps to pull yourself up with? Somebody gave you bootstraps. Right, so pride is this idea that I have maybe gifts, abilities, and talents, and all that I do with them, all that matters is what they do for me, not what they do for the world, not how they can benefit others, but it just solely and strictly revolves around me because what pride does, if, you, if humility is about understanding and embracing connection, pride is what sends us into isolation. It's what happens when we refuse 
to acknowledge and live in and out of our connection to others. It's when we choose to disconnect from those people. It's when we choose to live our lives without any sort of understanding of what we're doing to the planet or how it affects the poor or how it affects those <clears throat> who will never meet, who live across the world, and yet our decisions are make, have these ripple effects, right? Pride is what happens when we just don't care about those things, when we just focus on us. There's a story in the book of Daniel that I think really, really sort of illustrates this point. There's this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who defeated the people of Judah and took the, the people of Judah into exile. So he took the best of the best and deported them to Babylon, where he would try to train them in all the ways of being Babylonian. And this Nebuchadnezzar had had a disturbing dream. So he called for this, this exile from Judah who uh, was known to be a dream interpreter. His name was Daniel. So you have Daniel, the dream interpreter from Judah, standing before the king who led the military expedition, which destroyed his city, destroyed the temple of God, destroyed his way of life, had deported him to, exported him, uh, exiled him to Babylon. And now he stands before the king and the king needs help. He's had a dream. He's really deeply disturbed by the dream and he wants to know what does it mean? And I'm gonna give you all the details, but Daniel interprets the dream for him. And when Daniel interprets the dream from Nebuchadnezzar, it's basically this. If you don't change your ways, you are going to be driven from power, you're going to be driven from society, and you're going to dwell with the wild animals. And then notice what happens in Daniel 4. This is how Daniel ends sort of his plea with the king to reform his ways. Therefore, your majesty, please accept my advice. Remove your sins by doing what is right. Remove your wrongdoing by showing mercy to the poor. Then your safety will be long-lasting. What does he say? Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to remain in power, and if you want this to go well for you, then here's what you have to do. Reform your ways. Stop mistreating others. Show mercy to the poor. Actually realize that you are connected to everyone and everything else. And then this is where the story goes. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king declared, isn't this Babylon, the magnificent city that I built as the royal house by my own mighty strength and for my own majestic glory? All right, Nebuchadnezzar was like, look at my, this, this place is awesome. I, I, look at what I've done for me. And everyone will know how great I am because of this thing I've created. The words hadn't even left the king's mouth when a voice from heaven said, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are now informed. Kingship is taken away from you. You'll be driven away from other humans and you will live with the wild animals. When you get done with a soliloquy or a monologue and a divine voice speaks to you and says, this is what's up, you know that you've made a mistake. And King Nebuchadnezzar is driven away from society and ends up living with wild animals for a time until he sort of repents. Now, we don't need to deep dive this text, but I think there's this connection between pride and isolation. It's explicit here. Nebuchadnezzar's pride leads to his isolation and disconnection from other human beings because that's where pride always takes us. It takes us into ourselves and away from others. Pride is what happens when we fail to understand this connection. So humility isn't about cultivating a low sense of self or a low self-esteem. It's not about deflecting our role in the good things in the world, right? It, it doesn't become pride until our focus becomes, and doing all those other things becomes something that actually disconnects us from the people around us. On the contrary, humility 
is remembering that how we choose to show up in the world isn't only about us, but that we are part of a web of relationship, every part of which is sacred. Human flourishing isn't standing above others. Human flourishing is standing with others. And it's acknowledging the contributions that I bring, that you bring, that we all bring to the table, because it's going to take all of us to transform the world. Humility is about embracing that we are divine breath meets divine or meets soil, and that all of our potential, everything we have in us, our connection to all things, means that we have something we can contribute to the world. This understanding of humility can transform us. It can transform the way we see ourselves. It can transform the way we see our neighbor. And those two go hand in hand. If we don't transform how we see ourselves and what we think of ourselves, then we're going to continue to succeed in loving our neighbor as ourselves, but that won't be a good thing, right? To love your neighbor as yourself, if we can do that from a place of wholeness, from a place of self-esteem and appreciation for what we have to give to the world, then we may actually begin to see others differently and maybe even someday our enemies differently. It changes the way we see and understand our responsibility in the world, our role as participants in this world we all share together. I want to wrap up with this poem from Mary Oliver today. Mary Oliver, um, brilliant, beautiful poet, <clears throat> and this poet, poem is called Wild Geese, and it seemed fitting because this month many of us are, are mourning the fact that the Wild Goose Festival isn't happening as it, ha as it always has. And so this is, this is Mary Oliver's words. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. You know, often when we talk about humility, one of the things we'll say is, well, I, it's just important for us to know our place in the world, to know where we are, where we fit. And usually what we mean is it's not, it's not, to, do, uh, not to do great things, not to do great things. It's, it's just sort of to accept a, a low self-esteem, a low view of ourselves. But what Mary Oliver says is the world again and again is trying to announce our place in the family of things, that we are from the soil and that we are filled with divine breath. We are filled with spirit and that we share a connection with every other human being and every other living thing in this world. And when we become aware of that, it can truly make transformation possible. The world doesn't benefit from us having a low view of self. The world benefits from us having a centered view of ourselves as sort of this marriage between soil and sacred. And it's when we begin to live out of that that actual transformation can happen in the world. And one of the things that I've become aware of, Grace Point, in these days as we've been doing virtual gatherings is I've been fortunate, as we've talked about before, to meet people from 
all over the country and all over the world. And one of the things we've been asking is for some of the folks who are joining us from other places geographically, if they would share a little bit of their story, because it reminds us that wherever we are, we have this connection with people that we don't even really know about yet. And so a few weeks ago, I met Bob and Sandy, and um, they joined us for our uh, communion night at the end of the, in June. And uh, I got to talk to them and found out that they've been joining for a couple months, and they have this really this neat relationship where they're gathering with other people virtually and experiencing Grace Point. So I want to let Bob and Sandy and their friends and family introduce themselves to you, and then um, we'll come back and we'll wrap it up. Good morning, Grace Point community. We're Bob and Sandy coming to you from Sheridan, Wyoming. We just wanted to take a minute to share with you what it means to be part of your extended family. I first learned about Grace Point through my daughter Deidre, who lives in Nashville. I had the opportunity to attend church with her in Nashville at Grace Point one Sunday, and I found it to be welcoming, affirming, warm, loving, and in fact, joyful. I was so excited after the service that I shared it with my family. And this pandemic opportunity uh, where none of us can go to church physically has allowed us to join the Grace Point community through Zoom. We watch Zoom, uh, the service every Sunday, and then afterward we talk about it and discuss it and connect with each other. and find ways to come together and further our faith as a family. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Grace Point. We'd like to introduce you to the rest of our family now. Hi, my name's Deidre Thiel and I've been in Nashville for about 15 years. Through those years, I've attended more than one church where I felt like I was welcome, but I was welcome, but who I was and who I loved was not accepted. It was something I kept to myself. In the back of my head, I knew that I wasn't fully accepted in the place that was supposed to be safe. I stopped going to church for a while until I heard about Grace Point. The first time I went in Grace Point, I was welcomed with open arms by people who had no idea who I was, but loved me anyway. I realized that it was a place where I was welcome and. I was welcome and accepted, affirmed, and loved for who I was and who I loved. It was a place that helped me grow my relationship with God in a way I never thought was possible. Thank you, Grace Point, for being a safe place for me and helping me grow, and not only that, allowing me and my family to have time to grow our relationship with God individually as well as together. Thank you. Uh, my name is Larry Theo. I'm Deidre's father, and related to everybody else you see here. Um, main thing I like about Grace Point is, I think for the first time, in my life, I look forward to Sunday services. Uh, a lot of times you try to avoid going to church. You really don't you want to take the effort. And right now I feel like it's something that I look forward to every week. and something I get a good message out of every week. So I want to thank Grace Point very much for making my uh, religious life a lot better. All right. Hi, I'm Linda Sprutz. I live in Springfield, Illinois, and I am Bob's sister. It would take forever to say how much this means to me and how at home I feel with, you know, finally in the church situation. Hi, I'm Mary and this is my husband, Paul Schneider, and our daughter, Mandy Juby, and we're from Sheridan, Wyoming. And we've been on for a few months now and we look forward to staying in this congregation with you. We 
enjoy the minister listening to his words and we're learning new things and new way of looking at things each and every week. It's made us question uh, certain things that we believe in our faith and a better way of looking at it, the words, what we're doing, and uh, it's just made us feel all around as better Christians and better people. Um, I'm Mandy, I'm Deidre's cousin, and actually this is my first time attending. Um, I found the sermon to be very helpful and very interesting. And I have been questioning a lot um, with people that I love dearly, um, feeling excluded from church, and trying to explain that to my children um, and get them excited about church. So um, I'm really hopeful that this might be a helpful community for me. Hi, I'm Paul. I've got a, uh, I can't talk very well. But um, I feel like uh, a very good message from Grace Point and look forward to it every Sunday. Hi, I'm Kathy Hofford from Wapton, North Dakota. I had first heard about Grace Point through my family in Sheridan, Wyoming who started zooming in on my niece's church in Tennessee. And I really wondered why they went to a church that was so far away, but they seemed to really like it. So I thought I would give it a try one Sunday, especially since they said that they, the family stays on and chats afterwards. That was kind of the draw for me. So anyway, a couple Sundays later, I decided to try it out, and I totally got hooked on Pastor Josh's sermon. I really enjoyed the message, and he looks at things a different way than I had before, and I really can take things out of the message to apply to my life. And so now I enjoy every Sunday. I look forward to going to church at Jesus at Grace Point and I also enjoy that it's an all-inclusive church that accepts everyone which is the reason I don't go to church in the family church where I grew up in the first place because they weren't that way so anyway I totally enjoy it and we'll try to get more of my family members on board too because I think they would enjoy it also I look forward to seeing you all again when we're able to meet again in person. Oh, don't you just love that? Don't you just love this, the way this, this thing called Grace Point, this community is so much bigger than geography that we actually share this connection with people in Wyoming and South Dakota and Indiana and all over the place. There's this shared connection and it's just been so much fun getting to meet people and getting to hear their stories and hear why Grace Point matters to them. Grace Point. We all have a place in the family of things. And as we become more comfortable owning that and knowing that we are soil and sacred, we can actually begin to live in really beautiful and transformative ways. I, I don't know what this teaching has raised for you. For me, it's brought up several, uh, several things to think about, like just, just to focus on where we are now, this whole issue about wearing masks. 
it seems to me like I wear a mask because I realize I'm interconnected with all things. And I, I don't want to be the source of someone else's pain and sickness and suffering, right? I also thought about climate change. That, we, that people in this world right now that we're currently living in are experiencing the effects of climate change, and it typically affects the poorest people in the poorest communities first. And so what does it mean to live in inter, the interconnectedness of all things? What does it mean to be connected to the soil and also to be a, a citizen of planet Earth? What, what, is, what responsibility is that? How do we live in a humble way with that? And I'd be really interested to hear all the other associations you've made as well. So feel free to drop those in the chat there. Feel free to send me an email, Josh at gracepointwithane.net, and, and I'd love to hear sort of where this landed for you. Um, well, I don't know if you can tell, but um, my, my dog has been, has been really upset because somebody's setting off fireworks. So I hope that this weekend, whatever you've done, however you celebrate, you've done so safely, and that you've had a great weekend, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Look forward to being with you again next week. Until that time, Grace Point, we love you. Grace and peace be with you.